Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatched, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And the, the grand deception or the big lie that we want to cut to the heart of today is the perception out there that um, it seems like it, it infects, you know, both friend and foe alike. The idea that being a Christian somehow means you're supposed to be some kind of a patsy or a doormat. And the, the thinking usually goes something like this. You're supposed to be a Christian and Jesus was nice. Therefore, you should be nice. And nice is defined as you should do whatever I tell you to do, whatever it is that I want you to do. And if you disagree with what I want or with what I'm demanding or what I tell you, well, then you're just not being a very good Christian and you're a hypocrite and so on. Okay. Well, the thing of it is, the, you know, it's, it's like any good lie. There's a, in any, for any good lie to be a good lie, there has to be a good amount of truth in it. And what, what happens is with, with this particular lie as the Christian is patsy or doormat, is people go through, a, you know, it's kind of a superficial reading of the scriptures. And, you know, we'll find Jesus, you know, um, forgiving the woman caught in adultery. And you'll find Jesus calling us to love our neighbor as ourself and all these sorts of things. And again, that's all true. You know, there's, who, who can argue with it? It's written in black and white in the scriptures. You know, that Jesus calls us to be a people of charity. We're supposed to love one another as he has first loved us. And all those things that we have seen over and over again in the scriptures ever since we're little kids. Um, so much so that it just kind of gets soaked into us, kind of part of our DNA, which is a good thing. One of the things that would benefit all of us, I think, is just to have more scripture that's just a part of who and what we are, rather than just you know empty lines we might hear at church and so forth every once in a while. But again, this idea, though, that, that any number of people have come up with that basically says that, well, you know, you're, you're a Christian, you know, you're a Catholic, you're at the church, you know, and the church is supposed to be nice to people. And nice is defined as I should get what I want. And this just has tons and tons of manifestations. And I'll, I'll give you a few of them, and then we'll go and we'll spend the better part of, of this installment of Double-Edged Sword looking and seeing at that, you know, kind of the rest of what Scripture says. I'm going to assume that everybody has a pretty good handle on the parts of Scripture, again, where Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors and, you know, that we're to feed the hungry and, you know, clothe the naked and visit the sick and welcome the foreigner, you know, all the, all the, the parts of kindness that the Scriptures call us to do. And I'm certainly not going to argue with that because it's there and that's what we're supposed to do. That's part of being a Christian, but it's part of being a Christian. And what we're going to do on this installment of the Double-Edged Sword program is I'm going to look, you know, read you a rather substantial collection of scripture verses that never get talked about. And the idea behind reading these scripture verses that never get talked about is not to say, therefore, these scripture verses cancel out the previous ones that we all know about, again, about being loving and kind and caring and giving people that we as Christians are supposed to be, it doesn't cancel those out. And that's not what, what we're going to try to do today. What we're going to try to do is demonstrate how the, the scripture readings I'm going to read to you, the things I'm going to point out, how they complement and how they complete and how they fill out the rest of the life of a Christian, as opposed to just these handful of verses that people seem to want to use that, again, that they that they think they can use just to kind of get us to acquiesce and roll over and be a doormat or be a patsy. A couple of examples I think that, you know, probably we can understand that aren't that hard to get. 
you know, one thing is, you know, you might have the cohabiting couple. You know, you have a couple that they don't go to Mass. They, have, they do not practice their faith whatsoever. They're living together. They're fornicating. They're giving a terrible example to, to the other people in their family if they got younger siblings or cousins or anything like that. And then they come to the church and want to receive the sacrament of matrimony. And if, you know, God forbid, don't ask me how I know this from personal experience, but if, you know, the priest in charge, if the, if the pastor or the associate pastor says, you know, I, I don't even know who you people are. You know, which mass do you come to? We don't go to church. Well, why, do you, why don't you come to mass? Because it's boring. And a wedding mass is not going to be boring? Well, of course not. That's my wedding. So basically, the wedding is just a decoration. It's window dressing for your kind of special day, but you really have no intention of your wedding being a reflection of what St. Paul tells us in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5, that it's, it's supposed, you know, the, the sacrament of matrimony is supposed to be a reflection of the love that Christ has for his church. You've made, you've made it pretty clear what you think of Christ by your way of living, and you made it pretty clear what you think of his church because you don't want to practice your faith. You only want to use the church as the venue, you know, for your fancy wedding day. And so, again, you know, and then, and then people are just completely dismayed by this. Not only the bride and the groom, well, usually the groom don't care, but not only the bride and the groom, but also, you know, the families are going, well, this is the church. We thought the church was supposed to be kind and compassionate. We thought the church was supposed to help people and so on. Well, you know, if you're not willing to help yourself, there's not a whole lot we can do for you. You I remember years ago when I was in Salina, it was kind of an interesting thing. There was a guy, and way over kind of on the seedy edges of town, he had a bar that had strippers in it, you know, and, and um, I think, you know, we don't really say any much more about that. But what happened was, was he belonged to some Christian denomination there in town. He wasn't Catholic. But I really had to take my hat off and salute the pastor of his church because the pastor of his church sat him down and said, look, pal, you know, you're running a strip joint. You know, the, I think the, the particular denomination also kind of frowned on drinking, and, um, and the pastor was, really, was kind of willing to work with him on that a little bit because it is possible to drink responsibly. It is not possible to take your clothes off in public responsibly. That one doesn't work. And so I think from, you know, the pastor was really, was really kind of willing to work with him a little bit, at least from what I read in, in the paper. And, of course, you never know how reliable things are in the paper, but that's another – we'll leave that to another installment of Double-Edged Sword. But um, what happened was, you know, the, the pastor said, look – Unless and until you get rid of the strippers or get out of that business, don't come back to church. And I thought, finally, this guy's got some, you know, he's got some backbone. He's got a spine. He's standing up to this. Of course, the, the local paper, the Salina Journal, gets a hold of this. And, um, the, you know, this plays right into the, to the media narrative. And because, again, you know, the, the idea is, well, but Christians are not supposed to be judgmental because it says in the Bible not to judge. I also talked to Danetta one time about rerunning my double-edged sword program I did a while back on judging what that's all really about. But the, the idea was, you hear this guy, he's in the paper saying, I thought the job of my pastor was to save my soul, not to judge my soul. I was reading that. I'm going, pal, you'd better listen to your pastor because that's exactly what he's trying to do is to save your soul. All right. So, I mean, that, that, that's another example. You know, we'll, or we have the example again of the, you know, the, the couple or the single mother that comes in and wants to have their kid baptized. And again, not practicing the faith. You ask them, you say, look, I noticed you know, I've never seen you at mass before. What parish do you belong to? Are you from here in Hayes? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're from here in Hayes. Yeah, okay. And so do you plan on bringing the kid to church? Well, no. Do you plan on enrolling the kid in the Catholic school or a CCD program? 
Well, no, we're going to let them, they'll, we'll let them get old enough to make their own choice. Really? Okay. Well, but the thing of it is, is in this baptismal ritual, it says, you know, Billy Bob and Lulabelle, or just Lulabelle, because a lot of times in 40% of the cases, Billy Bob ain't any, any place to be found. It says, you have come here to present your child for baptism. In so doing, you are accepting the responsibility for raising this child in the ways of the faith. It will be your duty to bring to raise this child to keep God's commands as Christ has taught us by loving God and our neighbor. Do you clearly understand what you're undertaking? And they say, we do, or I do, if it's just the mom. Well, you know, the thing of it is, they're going to sit there in front of God and everybody else and make this public commitment that I am going to raise this child in the ways of the faith, and they have no intention whatsoever of doing it. Well, so then when you sit there and you say, well, I just really don't think that this baptism makes a whole lot of sense right now. And in fact, canon law actually backs me up on that one. One of the canons in canon law, I guess I should have brought my canon law book. I could have read it to you word for word. But it says that, you know, when you're going to baptize a baby, there that the, the priest in charge of the baptism has to have at least some hope that the child will be raised in the faith. And if that hope is totally lacking, canon law, the official law of the church says, the baptism is to be delayed and the parents are to be explained as to why. All right. But again, if you, if you sit there and you say, this baptism just makes no sense, well, then there's all kinds of wailing and grinding of teeth because the church is supposed to be compassionate. Didn't Jesus say, suffer the little children to come unto me? And now here's this mean old priest telling his parents he won't baptize their kid. Well, you know, the thing of it is, I've never told a parent that I won't baptize their child. What I have told them is, if you want to have your child baptized, this is what you need to do, and then they make the decision. If they, if they don't want to do it, well, then that's their business, you know. But, but again, it's this idea that somehow or another, that because it's the church and because you're Christian, that means you're supposed to just bend over and just take anything that, you know, walk, let people walk all over you. We're seeing that particularly, and we'll get to this in a, in, when we get to the scripture things here in a little bit, you know, with the kind of the tyrannical way that the gay movement is working these days. You know, with, with all of the stuff with the Supreme Court redefining marriage to include just about anything these days, with that happening, a lot of the rhetoric that comes around, and sad to say, a lot of Catholics have bought into it. You know, well, Jesus didn't judge people. Well, yeah, he did, but we'll get to that in a minute. You know, Jesus didn't judge people, and so who are we to judge, you know, as they, you know, they say, love is love. And you have to be careful, again, of these little, of these, of these slogans that kind of come out. You know, love is not love. You know, there is love. There is the love that God has for his people, and that love is reflected to us in the love of man and woman, um, in the sacrament of matrimony, and so on. And so, um, but again, you know, you Christians are supposed to love people, and it says in your Bible not to judge. And so, therefore, if Billy Bob and Bobby Bill want to get married and, and have their life of sodomy, well, then who are you to judge, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, there's that, that great line that the media got a hold of and just really ran with from Pope Francis, you know, when, when he made a comment about, you know, that if you had a homosexual person who was willing to live a celibate lifestyle, who was willing to live a chaste lifestyle— in such a case, Pope Francis says, who am I to judge? Well, I agree with that 100%. You know, everybody has a cross in life to bear. And um, if, if you have someone who has a same-sex attraction, but they're going to bear that cross in a dignified way and not let it manifest itself in all kinds of perverted acts, you know, who is any of us to judge? God love that person. That person's probably on the road to sainthood for carrying their cross. But not the way that the whole thing has been perverted and redefined kind of by our sick culture. So again... As I kind of said at the beginning of the program, I'm going to read you a bunch of scripture verses here, and then we'll talk about them a little bit as we go. 
And the idea behind this is, again, you know, because sometimes people will sit there and they'll say, well, you know, the Bible says this and it turns around and says that, and so therefore it contradicts itself, and so therefore you can't take the Bible seriously. That's not true. What we're looking at here is we're looking at building up an, a, a complete picture. I mean, you know, you can imagine like if someone, you know, you have a painter, you know, someone who can paint landscapes or something like that. And maybe they kind of just sort of roughed in the painting maybe with charcoal or maybe they just took their paintbrush and they've kind of roughed in where they're going to put the pond and the mountain and the cloud and, you know, some trees in the foreground and things like that. And, you know, you look at the not quite finished painting yet and you look at it and in a certain sense, it's almost kind of beautiful as it sits, but it's just not done. And that's what we're going to try to do today. The, the teachings that Jesus has reteaches us to be patient and kind and loving and generous and things like that. That's part of the picture, but it's not done. It's beautiful as it sits, but it's not finished. And so um, what we're going to try to do today is come in with our little palette and um, kind of paint things a little bit and see if we can't finish off the picture here. It's about the best I can do. One of the things that I that I kind of regret in my life is I'm, I have absolutely no artistic talent whatsoever. I wish I had the ability to make beautiful things. I wish I could make beautiful paintings or be like old Fabergé and make you know beautiful things out of silver and gold like the Fabergé eggs and things like that. But I can't do it. Um, I wish I could, but I can't. But we'll so we'll try to do it with words here and see see how this turns out. So again. Here we're going to look at what some of the scripture says then, where the scripture basically draws a line in the sand. And the scripture is basically putting out for us and saying, you know, here it is. You can take it or leave it. If you don't like it, there's the door. And this, the first one comes from the book of Joshua, from the very end of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. This is the very last chapter. And this, this really kind of closes the, the chapter on a huge piece of Israelite history. Because as we know, God had promised Abraham about about the 1800 BC, somewhere around there, that the God would take Abraham, He would make him the father of, of, of multitudes of many many of many many people. In fact, that's what Abraham means. Ab means father. Raham means multitude. So He would make him a father of a multitude, and He would give him land, and the whole world would be blessed by His name and things like that. And of course, by the time Abraham dies, he has Isaac, and that's it. So things aren't looking too good, but. As history unfolds, as the rest of the book of Genesis unfolds, you know, then we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They found the 12 tribes of Israel. And they end up in Egypt because of the famine at the end of the book of Genesis. By the beginning of the book of Exodus, there are slaves in Egypt. Moses comes and frees them. They go out into the desert. They bellyache and complain in the desert about how hard things are. Finally, God's had enough and says, all right, the criers and moaners, you guys can just die off in the desert. And um, then once we get a new generation of, of tough people, then they'll come over and take over the promised land. And then that's what happens in the book of Joshua. And so the book of Joshua is all about the, the Israelites coming in and taking possession of the promised land and being settled, each tribe having its own ancestral heritage, where you would have the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the land of Dan, the land of, of Judah, all these various lands for the 12 tribes of Israel. And so at the end, as everybody's going off to their inheritance, Joshua tells the people, this is the very end. This is Joshua's farewell speech to the folks. In Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14, in case you want to get your Bible out and look it up for yourself, Joshua says, Now therefore revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And here's where Joshua draws his line in the sand. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve where the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 
It can't be any clearer than that. If you don't want to serve God, then go find the God that you want to serve and serve him. We see this a lot with young people, especially like when it comes time for confirmation age and so on. And we, you know, we have the program for confirmation and all these, all these things that we have lined out. Some of it's parish policy or parish program. Some of it comes from the diocese. And we'll sit down and say, look, if you want your kid, you know, in, in Hayes, it's in eighth grade. I think when I was in Salina, it was, it was um, junior year in high school or something like that. But we would sit people down and say, this is, this is the program. And so, you know, this is, this is where we have the retreat. This is where we have the service hours. And then you're schooling either at the Catholic school or at the, in the CCD program and so on. And this is what's expected if you, if you expect to be confirmed. And parents, not the kids. The kids would kind of just sit there and they're sort of along for the ride. Parents would throw a royal fit. How do you expect us to do this? This is too much. You know, our kids, they got sports. They got basketball and so on. And finally, one time I just told a couple of the parents, I said, look, if basketball is your God, serve him and follow basketball the God as far as basketball the God will take you. You know, you don't need us. You don't need, you don't need the sacrament of confirmation if you want to serve the God of basketball. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Again, as Joshua says, if you are not willing to serve, you know, the God of Moses, the one that got us out of Egypt, decide today who you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua kind of, you know, needles them a little bit because the people answer and they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. These are the same people that in the previous book of Exodus in chapter 32 made the golden calf. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us all along the way that we went among all the peoples whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Again, you read that, and if you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, it's hard to read it with a straight face because now they're glorying in the fact that God brought them out of the, out of the land of Egypt and God was with them and stayed with them um, in their time in the desert. These are the same people that were complaining, oh, that we could have the, the food that we ate in Egypt. Let's select a captain and go back to Egypt. We're disgusted with this wretched food, the manna that came from heaven. And so, again, you read that, and you're just kind of laughing at yourself. And then Joshua, because he's smart, he sees through it. In verse 19, it says, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves. You're the ones that said it that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, yes, we are witnesses. Then he said, put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and him we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made statues and ordinances for them at Shechem. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of the Lord and took a large stone and set it up under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, See, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you if you falsely deal with your God. So Joshua sent the people away to their inheritances. So we can see there, you know, Joshua is not messing around. You know, this, this, is, this is it. Now, what then about Jesus? We go to the New Testament, and what does Jesus tell us about be- becoming one of his followers? He says, I came to bring a fire to the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. 
From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In other words, Jesus is just making a statement of fact here that anyone who follows him, anyone who adopts his way of life, there's going to be division. There are going to be people who aren't going to talk to each other anymore. And, you know, again, we see this. You know, how many families are there out there where you have one of the members of the family that goes off the reservation and does something really kooky? And there's many examples of that. And then the other family members that want to kind of remain faithful to their Christian way of life and remain faithful to the teachings of our Lord, what happens? There's division, even in the family. And so that's something that just can't be denied and can't be gotten away from. In the Gospel of St. Mark, kind of in the apocalyptic section towards the end in chapter 13, Jesus tells the apostles, As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." Brother will betray brother to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will all be hated because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, again, Jesus, he's not throwing this out there as as a way to kind of agitate people. He's just saying this is the way things are. And all we have to do is look at the various movements throughout history, and it's coming our way fairly soon, folks. But we look throughout history... And you look at how, yeah, there have been times when parents have turned their children, children have turned their parents over to the government, all right? We've seen that in the fascist world of the Nazis. We've seen it in the communist world, in the Marxist world, and things like that. This has gone on before. I think that one of the things that we have to really kind of understand and um, sadly accept is the past 100 years or so, eh, maybe the past 80, no, up until about 1990, I think, was when really things started kind of falling apart. But from 1890 to 1990, call it that century, it was really kind of an exceptional century. An exceptional not in the sense that um, it was somehow or another super-duper good um, because it was the 20th century and it was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. But at the same time, it was exceptional in the sense that there was kind of a detente between the king and the church, you know, between the government and the church, that um, during those times that the, the church and the state coexisted, you know, fairly nicely. And then, you know, the church kind of stayed out of our way. The government stayed out of the church's way. And then the church, for its part, basically taught, you know, its teachings in the schools and the churches and so on. And then people with those consciences formed that way would then go into the state house, go into the legislature, go to the judge's bench and so on with those Christian values inculcated in them. And then without having to have some kind of a theocracy, you know, where you have like what they have in Iran, where you got the Ayatollah, you know, the grand supreme Islamic ruler that um, has the final say-so over everything. You didn't have it that way, but you, you had people who would, you know, just bring these values with them into their offices. And in so doing, they, you know, we, we had a, we had a, there was a good, a good cooperative relationship between the church and the state. That was the exception to the rule historically. That's why it was exceptional. It was the exception to the rule. Um, now, I think that what we're seeing in the United States with the hostility that there is against um, Christianity and certainly against the Catholic Church, we're getting kind of more into normal times, and those normal times might be kind of scary. You know, later on in the Gospel of St. John, um, this is in, in John chapter 7, 
It says, after this, Jesus went to Galilee, and he did not wish to go about Judea because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. Now, the Jewish festival of booze was near. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one who wants to be widely known acts in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. But Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it that its works are evil. There you have the words from Christ himself. The world cannot hate those who are of the world, but it hates Jesus because he testifies against its works, which are evil. All right. And again, that's that's kind of dovetails what we've seen in, in, in Luke and Mark as well, what Jesus warns us about. Now, so the thing that is, the first part then we've seen here is about um, Jesus kind of drawing his line in the sand and saying, look, if you're going to follow what I teach, if you're going to conform yourself to my person, if you're going to be the other Christ, the other version of Jesus who's out running around on the street or, you know, at work or at school or whatever, you can expect to be hated. You can expect to be persecuted. You can expect to be hauled into court. You can expect all kinds of sanctions against you. All right. Again, this is to fill out the rest of what Jesus says about loving our neighbor and being kind and generous and patient and so on. This doesn't contradict it. It doesn't cancel it out. It fills it out. And so, um, you know, we're kind of, we'll leave that at that here for the first part of the program. When we come back, we'll talk and see what St. Paul says about some of this stuff. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And today on this um, installment of Double-Edged Sword, we've been talking about the idea that being a Christian does not mean that you're a doormat. It doesn't mean you just lay down and let people walk all over you. It doesn't mean that you're somebody's patsy. We talked about in the previous part of the program, in the first half, how there seems to be this idea out there that if we call ourselves Christian, then if we stand up for what we believe in, then somehow or another we're being mean-spirited or we're full of hate or we're hypocrites because Christians are supposed to be nice. And you're not giving me what I want right now, therefore you're not nice, therefore you're not Christian. Well, again, one of the things that we really have to kind of be aware of is we don't want to let the opponent establish the parameters of the argument. And the way that happens all the time is you'll hear people say, so what you're saying is this. Whenever you hear that, whenever you hear someone say, so what you're saying, be very, very careful and stop them right there and say, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's what you're saying. 
Okay, um, I can give you an example. Again, in the previous part of the of the program, again we talked about the the couple that comes in that is not practicing the faith. They they don't come to mass on Sunday. They have no intention to coming come to mass on Sunday. They're living together in a life of fornication, but they want to use the church, you know, because it's pretty as a venue for their big for their big fancy wedding day. And when you challenge them on this and say, you know. I just really don't think that what we have is what you want. I think what I have to offer in a sacramental marriage and what you want, which is just, again, to use a place as a theater for your show, I just don't think what I have and what you want are, are, are the same thing. They're two different things. Oh, so what you're saying is, is unless I'm some kind of a perfect Christian that meets up to your criteria, then I can't get married here. No, I didn't say that at all. That's what you said. See what I'm saying? That you have to be very careful about that. Whenever you hear someone say, so what you're saying is, be very careful because what they're trying to do is redefine what you said, redefine the argument on their terms, and then they can come and attack that. So again, if someone says, oh, so what you're saying is, unless you're a perfect Catholic, you can't get married in the Catholic Church. It's like, no, I didn't say that, you did. But if I don't catch it quick enough, then that person's won the day. Because, again, the church doesn't expect anybody to be perfect to receive the sacrament of matrimony. That's, that would just be absurd. Heck, we're not perfect to receive the sacrament of holy orders. You know, the reason why we have sacraments is precisely because we're not perfect. The sacraments are the aids we have to guide us towards perfection. But if someone sits there and says, oh, well, you know, so what you're saying is if I'm not a perfect Catholic, I can't get married. And if I don't counter that, if I'm not quick enough to say, no, I didn't say that, you said that. What I said was, what I have to offer a sacramental marriage presupposes that the couple is at least striving in, to some extent to live a godly Christian life as outlined for us in the scriptures. You have told me you are not doing that and you have no intention of doing that. Therefore, what I have to offer and what you want are two different things. Okay, you see that? So you need to be very, very careful. Whenever, whenever you hear someone, oh, so what you're saying is be very careful. Anytime you hear that, say, no, that is not what I'm saying. That's what you're saying. And then take the opportunity to re-clarify what you're saying. All right? So that was kind of the first piece. Now, when we look then, again, at this idea, that this, this false idea out there that, well, you're a Christian. And so therefore, since you're a Christian, you have to be nice and being nice is defined as you have to give me whatever I want and agree with whatever I say, because if you don't give me what I want and if you don't agree with what I say, then you're a hater and Christians are supposed to love and that makes you a hypocrite. Well, okay, let's take a look at this. In 1 Corinthians 5, St. Paul says this, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or to the greedy or robbers or idolaters since you would then need to go out of the world. In other words, what St. Paul is saying is, he says, I'm not talking about the immoral people of the world, the people that don't belong to the Christian fold. He goes, I'm not talking about them. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. In other words, anyone who calls themselves a Christian who is sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a robber. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? God will judge those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. So again, there in 1 Corinthians 5, St. Paul, as always, is saying an awful lot with just a few words. In other words, what St. Paul is saying is, if you have someone who's out there, you know, who doesn't, who has nothing to do with the faith, and they're just off living the life of, you know, life of debauchery of a pagan, Paul says, let them. I mean, you know, you, you got nothing to do with them. Let them go. 
But St. Paul says, but I'm writing to you, do not associate with anyone who calls themselves a Christian who is sexually immoral or is greedy or an idolater, a rebel, a drunkard, or a robber. Do not even eat with such a one. Isn't that something? See, here you have from the Bible, St. Paul saying, don't associate with these folks. All right? Now, again, does this cancel out what Jesus says about loving our neighbor and so on? No, it doesn't. Because, again, it's kind of like our example of, of this Protestant minister that told the owner of the strip bar, either dump the bar or quit coming to my church. What's he doing? He's trying to get the guy to come around and do the right thing. And we'll see where St. Paul talks about this a little bit later. Later on then, this is, that was in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 6, then St. Paul kind of fine-tunes it a little bit. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, that means people who have sex outside of marriage. Idolaters, you know, people who worship other things than God. What does that mean? Well, if, if I have something in my life that keeps me from going to Mass on Sunday, um, such as sports or work or entertainment or something like that, that's my God. Okay, adulterers. I think we know what, what, what adultery is about. Male prostitutes and sodomites. In other words, what he's talking about there is basically active homosexuals, gay people who are engaging in gay sex, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revelers, robbers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. All right. So again, we can see here that again, St. Paul is saying, look, there are certain activities and certain ways of life that are just completely outside of the Christian realm. And such a people, again, he says, don't associate with them because, you know, for any number, you know, number one, they're going to give you a bad example and probably lead you down the, you know, a path of destruction. But he says, look, they're not, they have, they're not part of the kingdom of God. So I have nothing to do with them. In Romans 1, St. Paul kind of takes off the gloves a little bit with the gay community there in, in Rome. And I think here we, you know, we need to be very, very clear here because I think in our times the, with the violence and stuff that's going on everywhere, you know, for example, when you look in the Islamic world, I think most of us would believe, and I think it's reasonable to believe, that the average Muslim in the world, what do they want? They want the same thing everybody else wants. They want a home for their family. They want to take care of their kids. They want to raise their families. They want to be able to, you know, have put food on the table, get their kids educated, you know, celebrate with grandma and grandpa, you know, things like that. I think that's what the average Muslim wants. I don't think that the average Muslim wants to fly airplanes into buildings or blow themselves up in a busy marketplace. The average Muslim wants what the average Jew and average Christian and average Hindu wants. They, you know, they want to have enjoy a certain modicum of prosperity and peace and happiness in this life as they prepare for the for the life that is to come. And so, but but the thing of it is though is that you have this this radical fringe, this tiny minority of Muslims that have radicalized the Muslim faith in the in the eyes of the world, and they're the ones that are causing all the trouble. You know, they're the ones that are murdering people and cutting people's heads off and things like that. Well, I think if you want to, if you understand that, which I think most people do, if you want to understand the gay movement, just think of it in terms of radical Islam, because it's the very same thing. What happens? You've got, I think, the average homosexual person is kind of going, will you please just leave me alone? Let me do my job. Let me go about my business. Now that the, the, the Supreme Court has, has pulled this right to marry out of thin air, basically on a rather trashy interpretation of the 14th Amendment, Again, I think even now, the average homosexual couple is going to go, look, 
I'm going to go down to the courthouse. I'm going to get my little, you know, marriage license and so on so that me and my buddy here can enjoy the legal benefits of being married. And that's probably all they want. All right. But there's this fringe. There's the gay radical fringe. And these people, you know, if you want to talk about where hatred is to be found, it's to be found with them. And you got to be careful because, again, they throw words around like hater and homophobe and things like that, when in fact, you know, where the, where the true hatred is to be found is the attitude they have towards anybody who disagrees with them. And, you know, the very same people that are calling for tolerance and diversity and open-mindedness are the most intolerant, close-minded people you're ever going to meet. And if you want to find out just how true that is, disagree with them. You know, I have yet to hear of any kind of a public conversation where someone, you know, takes on a gay person in public and says, you know, again, one of these gay activists and says, I don't agree with what you want and here is why. And I have yet to hear one of those people go, well, no, wait a minute. I just don't think we've explained our position well enough. Let me, let me see if I can get you convinced of this. They don't do that. Instead, you're just a hater. You're a homophobe. Why do you hate gay people? Well, the thing is, I don't, you know, if someone hates gay people, they got a problem, you know. But I think that what we have to look at is, you know, when it comes to the point when we cannot have a discussion, then something is wrong. And here's what St. Paul figured out about the gay community in Rome. He said, they're filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they do not do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Again, St. Paul has, you know, he's really, you know, going through the throat here, and he's hitting with some pretty hard words. But again, I think all you have to do is look at the, if you if watch any of this stuff in the media and you look at all the noise these people made, they do. They hate God. they insolent, and they insult people. That is to say, if you disagree with me, I'm going to call you names. They are ruthless, all right? Um, you, know, you look at what St. Paul says, he ain't kidding. And so, um, again, as the Christian, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just sit down and take this? No. And St. Paul says so. It says so in the scriptures. Later on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, St. Paul says, Take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter. Have nothing to do with them so that they may be ashamed. But then he says this, Do not regard them as enemies, but warn them as believers. Now again, St. Paul's talking about those who are within the fold, within the Christian fold. And this is again, this is where what St. Paul is saying balances out and fills out the rest of the picture of what Jesus is saying. St. Paul is not telling us to go up to people and say, well, it says here in the Bible, I'm not supposed to associate with you because you're a sexually immoral person or you're, you're a greedy person or you're an idolater or you're a drunkard, so I'm not having nothing to do with you. That isn't what St. Paul is saying to do. Notice what he says. Do not regard them as enemies, but warn them as believers. And so whenever we have people that are on the inside, you know, people who call themselves Christians, you know, what are we supposed to do? Work with them. Try to, you know, convince them of the rightness of, of what the Lord teaches us. You might remember Jesus himself says, I'm pretty sure it's in Matthew 17, where he says, you know, if, if you know, your brother wrongs, does something wrong, go point it out to him, but keep it between the two of you. And if he, if he understands what, where he's gone wrong and you want him back, hey, you won the day, good for you. But if he doesn't listen to you, take two or three others with you so that whatever is said can be backed up by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen to the two or three of you, take it to the church. In other words, make it public. 
And if he doesn't listen to the church, then it says, treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Well, again, the Gentiles and tax collectors, they're the people that are on the outside of the Jewish fold. And so, again, if someone was a Gentile or tax collector, they were on the outside. And so Jesus says, if they're not going to listen to you, kick them out, put them on the outside. Now, again, taken in the context with the rest of the scriptures, though, why do we do that? Hopefully to impress upon these folks how wrong their, their point of view is so that they'll repent so that we can joyfully receive them back into the family. That's the idea. All right. In 2 Timothy, St. Paul says this, Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words which does not do any good but only ruins those who are listening. Well, that just pretty much torpedoed most of what you hear on the cable news channels. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Avoid profane chatter, for it will lead more people, it will lead people more and more into impiety, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Isn't that the truth? Then St. Paul says, shun youthful passions. Um, pursue it. This is, this is, um, this is in, in 2 Timothy as well. He says, shun youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord in a pure heart. Have nothing to do with stupid and senseless controversies that you know that they breed quarrels. And as the Lord's servant um, must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them that they will repent and come to know the truth, and they may escape the snare of the devil from being held captive by him to do his will. See, again, you know, the, the problem is we seem to have been pulled into two polar extremes, both of which are equally wrong. The one wrong extreme is to sit there and say, well, I'm a Christian. I can't say anything. I'm not supposed to upset people. I'm supposed to love everybody. And so, you know, if people want to live a disordered lifestyle, who am I to judge? Just let them go. That is wrong. And that is nowhere to be found in Scripture. And that is not part of the Christian tradition. The other polar extreme, the other opposite extreme is, you know, kind of the Bible thumping guy that gets up and says, well, the Bible says this, this, and this, and you don't fit that or that, so you're going to hell, my friend, and that's the end of that. Well, that isn't what the Bible says either. You know, there, you know the, the Bible, particularly the writings of St. Paul, and um, Jesus does the same thing in the Gospels, you know, they do list behaviors that will land us in hell. There's no question about it. But again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat some of this stuff of what St. Paul says. Again, in 2 Thessalonians, he says, do not regard them as enemies, warn them as believers. And then he tells Timothy, as the Lord's servant, you must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. Okay, we can see then that, um, that, that on, the, on the one hand, beating people over the head with the Bible, that's not gonna do any good. And you can see that what, what the Lord calls for here actually takes a lot of work. It's, you know, it's easy to just go, well, you're going to hell, pal. I'm done with you. Wash your hands and I'm through. But on the other hand, when he says, be, you know, be kindly to everyone, an apt teacher. Well, if I'm going to teach, first I have to learn. I have to know what I'm going to teach. I have to learn what the scripture says. I have to learn what the church teaches. And I have to have, it, you know, I have, to have my ducks in a row in my own mind so that when I present this to somebody else, it makes sense and they'll get it. And they'll go, oh, you know, I never knew that. You know, as much as I hate to admit it, that makes sense. And if you can do that, you know, that, that's, that's a major battle that's won. And then, you know, St. Paul says, be patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. That's the part that's kind of hard. And it's kind of hard for two reasons. Number one, we have it sort of, it's part of our human nature, I think, that we want to go in and draw our sword and slay the dragon and we want to win the day. 
On the other hand, on the part of the person that needs to be corrected, we've um, sort of generated this mindset that if anybody comes and tries to correct me, it's because they hate me and it's because they're being judgmental and so on. We're, we're just not really ever um, very open about listening to what other people might have to say, especially if my behavior isn't exactly, you know, according to Hoyle, according to the scriptures. Again, um, St. Paul, um, in, in the letter to Titus in chapter 3, he says, I desire that you insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. But avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. After a first and second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who causes division, since you know that such a person is perverted, sinful, and being self-condemned. Again, St. Paul makes it pretty clear. What does he say? After a first or second admonition, in other words, you're trying to be kindly, you're trying to be patient, you're trying to be an apt teacher, like he says, to, like he tells Timothy, if that doesn't work, then, then have nothing more to do with them. And this is very, very difficult because I think that, you know, again, just from people's, you know, common experience, you know, what do you do when the person that you're having this conversation with, and of course, a lot of times it's not a conversation. It seems like it too quickly degenerates into a yelling match. But again, if you have someone, you know, what if, it, what if it's a member of your family that went out and married their same-sex partner, and now they're, they're using the love that you have for them as some kind of a blackmail that, you know, if you love me, you're going to come to this marriage ceremony, and you're going to celebrate with me and my partner, and if you don't, I'm never going to talk to you again. Well, you know, the thing is, we kind of have to ask ourselves the question, what do we do in those cases? And I think that um, whenever Jesus talks about throwing your pearls to swine, that gives us a little insight as to how to understand what's going on there. Our pearls are our integrity, our character, our morals, you know, our, 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 our sense of self-respect and things like that. I know that um, had a had a case some years ago, it was very sad, of a, a young lady who moves in with her boyfriend and, um, and she was, you know, she came from a very good Catholic family. Her parents are very, very good people. And she moves in with this guy, and then she tells the mom and dad that they're going to get married in some rose garden somewhere because she doesn't want to go through all that Catholic stuff. And, um, and the parents, are, they come to me, and they say, well, what should we do? What should we do? And I say, well, you know, what, what I'm going to tell you, you're not going to want to hear. I said, but you're going to have to ask yourself, what means more to you? Your faith, your Catholic faith, your character, your integrity, and your morals, or the daughter? And for a parent's that is like chewing on broken glass. That is a hard, hard thing to accept. And um, because I told him, I said, what's going to happen is this. If you say, sorry, Tootsie, we're not coming to the wedding. We raised you different. Here's a card. Wish you the best. Love you to death. But we're not coming. Yeah, she may write you off. You may never see your grandchildren. She may never have another, another thing to do with you in your life. But you know what? You will have retained and preserved your self-respect, your character, your integrity. If you go to this wedding, if you cave into her, you will sacrifice all that and you will find that doing so is not going to win her back. And so they were, you know, they, 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 these were very reasonable people and they thought about it and, you know, they, well, okay, Father, thanks, and we'll think about that. Well, then I saw him, I don't know, about a, six or seven months later and, and just, I didn't even bring it up. I, hey, how you doing? And, and they just kind of looked at their shoes and, and I said, well, how's everything going? And they said, well, we went ahead and went to the wedding, but you know what? It's exactly what you said. You know, we went, we were very uncomfortable. 
she even kind of rubbed it in our face, you know, that that um, that evidently that Catholic faith not must not mean much to us because we went ahead and came to the wedding. And now, even though we went and came to the wedding and everything, she still has nothing to do with us. And, um, and that's what it means to throw the pearls to swine. What are the pearls? The pearls is your character, your integrity, and your morals. What's the swine? In this case, it was the daughter. And um, because Jesus says, if you throw your pearls to swine, they will devour the pearls, they'll stomp over the pearls, and they'll turn on you and gore you and, and chew you up. Um, and that's exactly, what, that's exactly what happened. So again, you know, the whole, um, to kind of recap, the, the theme or, you know, the idea of this installment of Double-Edged Sword was the idea that Christians are not intended to be, you are not obligated by your Christian faith to be a doormat or a patsy or just to sell out to every little thing just because someone's feelings are going to get hurt if you stand up for what's right. We saw, you know, in a number of places in the scriptures where that's the case. Again, the purpose behind this is not to not to use one piece of scripture to cancel out another piece of scripture. That's not the point at all, but to paint a fuller picture and to see how at one and the same time, you know, the scriptures um, do require us to be kind and patient and to try to, you know, bring people along as best we can. But if they make it perfectly clear, particularly by their actions, you know, I, I, again, I think a lot of times, you know, again, there, there's been this, this lie that's been set up that if you're going to belong to the Catholic Church, you check your brain into the door and do everything the church says or leave. That's not the case. You know, the church is, is, you know, it's the refugium peccatorum. It's the refuge of sinners. It's where we come to try to figure stuff out. And if we're trying to figure stuff out and we can't really quite understand it and we're struggling with it, then the church is the place for you. There's no question about that. But if you've made up your mind, you know, if you have, you know, people that say, I'm not going to go to church on Sunday. It bores me. I don't want to do that. I got other things I want to do. Um, but I want to get my kid baptized, you know. I want to have my kid in the Catholic school, although I don't want to, you know, be a stewardship active member of the parish. Well, then, you know, hit the road. And um, I think that, that, again, you know, for a lot of people that sounds pretty harsh, but the scriptures are pretty clear about it. And I think we've demonstrated that with these, um, with the scriptural citations that I read. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. Um, you can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.